The National Museum of Funeral History presents The Final Curtain Never Closes. I'm your host, Genevieve Keeney Vasquez, the president and CEO of the museum. So today we're going to talk about safe friends and dying. Interesting topic, but it was one that was brought to me by this amazing man, Frank Vasquez, and the journey that he has been taking since the loss of a very dear friend of his. But let me tell you a little bit about Frank. Besides the fact that he's my husband, my partner in life, and an amazing person, uh, he has quite an accomplished history to himself. And I think that this leads into the fact that, you know, sometimes we think that, you know, accomplished people, uh, we, we, we grieve differently. Or sometimes you look at somebody and they seem to have it all, but yet we don't realize the battles that they are enduring inside. Our outsides reflect very different from the insides. Frank Vasquez was a United States Marine from 1981 to 1986, where he supported the combat element as a tactical air control chief. That's quite a task to have to undertake, and to thank a U.S. Marine has the ability to crumble inside at the loss of a friend. But during his tour, he earned a commercial instrument, multi-engine, and flight instructor rating. He has a bachelor's degree from the University of Houston in technology and an associate's degree in aeronautical science from San Jacinto College and two airline transport ratings in single and multi-engine aircraft. He began flying jets at the age of 21. He was an aviation manager and chief pilot for Franks International, which is the fourth largest private-owned company in the U.S., and he flew the Citation 650 corporate jet domestically and internationally for Franks International. His duties, believe it or not, included flying Bush 41 and his family for 17 years. No stranger to high-profile and extremely powerful people, his list includes Dan Quayle, Mikhail Gorbachev, Oliver North, Norman Schwarzkopf, Navy Admirals, and members of Congress. The day after 9-11, he was the only civilian jet flying Bush 41 to Washington, D.C. to advise his son, Bush 43, on what to do next. He served as an aviation safety inspector for the Federal Aviation Administration, where his duties included aircraft crash investigations, air show supervision, and safety and check rides for pilots and flight instructors for one year. Missing the cockpit full-time, he then went back into flying as a chief pilot for Harco Aviation commanding the Falcon 50, the Citation XLS Plus, and the Citation Ultra. He currently works for Flight Safety International as an instructor examiner on the Falcon 50, 900 transcontinental business jets and the Citation Ultra utility jet and flies contract on the Falcon Series tri-jets part-time. This man has a very, very extensive resume, and he has been in charge of not only some of our leaders of our nation, but an aircraft which commands his control at every moment. So how is it that someone who's so polished, so versed in commanding the instrumentation of what we call a ballistic missile in the air, 
can crumble so easily at the death of a friend. Again, like I said in the beginning, sometimes we look at people and we think they're unbreakable. They're built of steel, and there's nothing that can shake them from their platform. So it is my honor today to introduce to you Frank Vasquez as he tells us of his journey and when his armor was penetrated. Thank you, my love, and happy anniversary. Oh, thank you. Happy anniversary. This is the first time we met. Yes, yes. At about two in the afternoon. (laughs) Yes, and here we are, unfortunately, talking about a friend who was there for you before I was. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'll just leave his name as Tim, and that's it. Sure. So, he was a safe friend. And what I define by that is most men don't have friends. They just have acquaintances. And if you think I'm kidding you, look at the suicide rates. They're off the charts. COVID had nothing on men's suicide. Nothing. Compared to women, it's it's a joke. Because they have nowhere to turn and nowhere to, no one to talk to. And the examples that we have in the media for men are ridiculous. You're either a bumbling idiot, like Ted Bundy, or you're a man with no feelings, no heart, like Rambo, and you kill everything you don't like. It's an abomination of what men are. You don't have feelings, or you can't think. So we have no guidance. And we're brought up in a world now where you go to school, and all day you're exposed to women. You don't get to see men until maybe you go into the military or you're involved in sports. And not many people do that. Not many guys do that. I was in a seminar one time where they asked 350 men, if you had suicidal thoughts where you wanted to shoot yourself in the head at 3 in the morning, is there anybody you can call before you do that? And nobody rose their hand. Not a single man rose his hand. And he says, that's a problem with our society, that we need to have friends, a safe friend, somebody you can call at any time, any place, to stop you from doing something that you might regret or other people are going to suffer from. So Tim was your safe friend. Yeah. Me and him had a tremendous connection because we both were divorced at the same time. And we met in an athletic running club. And then uh, I thought he was a cop at first because of his haircut. Turns out he was a retired Navy pilot. He went to the academy, Naval Academy Prep School, Annapolis, and he became a P-3 Orion pilot and instructor pilot. So, you know, I told him I had the opportunity to go to Annapolis, but I didn't trust the military to accomplish my ultimate dream was to be a jet pilot. And he, he went off and told me, you know, if you had gone... You probably wouldn't have went because they offered you that in boot camp, dude. Nobody gets that. So at the at the academy, you would have been a, a shoe-in. And I just looked at him and went, wow, this guy's special. So we had this competitive aura between us because um, I was about three years older. So if he'd beat me, I would tell him on a run, you beat an old man, so what? But the old man flies higher and faster. And he goes, yeah, but I fly farther. And, I, and then he goes, and I fly weapons. And I go, yeah, well, I flew the guys that said drop the weapons. So we were constantly bumping each other's heads on that. 
Always like, trying to one up each other. Yeah, yeah. And it was in fun. It was in good fun. You know, he gave me a hard time about being short. I gave him a hard time about being thin and skinny. I could break him in half. Yeah. So, and how long was this friendship? Over 10 years. Yeah. Wow, that's a long time. And he was over every weekend for dinners and stuff like that, you know. And um, I remember the day he opened up to me and we became a safe friend. He told me he didn't see his divorce coming. His wife just hit him with papers. And he said it broke him in half. And I could I could see the pain coming out. For a few moments there, he just opened his chest and spewed these words and these feelings out like a cannon ejecting a projectile. So, you know, then I told him about my issues with my friend, with my, uh, with my former divorce. And, um, I remember one night I got totally trashed because that's what we tried to do. We would try to drink each other to death. You know, drinking is a way of medicating pain. We did a good job of that. And I told him I had to go home and he goes, why? And I go, cause I had to feed my cat. And he looked at me and goes, it, it actually gives me some purpose. And he looked at me really quiet. And the next day he went out and he uh, adopted a cat. To give him purpose. Mm-hmm. And then he adopted a dog. And then he needed a house for him. And then um, it, it took the edge off of his life, I could tell, with his cat and his dog. And then his house. So it's safe to say that you were also his safe friend. Yep, I was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. He would he would talk to me about things and I would talk about things like, like that. And then we would talk about instructing as pilots and I would say, Look, I I teach different because of my background. I will let you know the scenario that's gonna happen to you. We're gonna go over the checklist, we're gonna run through it in the simulator, and then you're gonna learn something instead of me just hitting you with a shock and awe where you won't learn anything. All you're trying to do is get the airplane on the ground. And I remember Tim looked at me, and he goes, you know, in the Navy, we don't do that. We just hit you with shock and awe, and we call that perpetuating hate because somebody did it to you, so we're going to do it to the next, next, next round of guys. And he goes, that's pretty awesome, man. He goes, you'll actually save lives doing that. And I've gotten tons of text and emails for multiple malfunctions or Pilots have gotten them on the ground where they shouldn't have. And it was, and I always think about Tim telling me, you know, about not perpetuating hate. That was a powerful statement in my aviation career that, that stayed with me as hard as when Chuck Yeager was asked, how did you not die flying these experimental aircraft? And his statement was, I knew when to stop. So yeah, Tim was a safe friend. But with that comes responsibilities. What do you think some of those responsibilities are? Not only be there when times are good and times are bad, but be there when you're dying instead of keeping it a secret. And that's what Tim did to you. Yeah. He kept it a secret. He didn't tell anybody. The day after we got married, he was diagnosed with bladder cancer. And he was standing in our wedding. One of my best men. And the next day, he learned of a terminal illness that he didn't share with anybody. Anybody. So that was wrong. Yeah. And it hits you hard, doubly. Yeah. Yep. So to kind of set the stage, I'm a palliative nurse at the VA Medical Center here in Houston. And 
We just had Tim over to our house, not but four months ago, for a going-away party of Frank's son, Jet. Uh, we had a wonderful party. Everyone was in laughter, mm-hmm. uh, eating great food, and sharing the friendship as if nothing has changed. It was a big Go Navy party for Jet, and I had other Navy officers that were there that were pilots, you know? Yeah. We're a military family, so you know, military families, we all kind of come together uh, and celebrate the, the comings and goings of, of our comrades, our children, and celebrate that they're off to serve our country. And, you know, interesting enough, you were showing me there was a video you created of that day for your son. Yeah, yeah. Tim was walking up the driveway with all my Mustang buddies, so we had Mustangs from 69 to 73 up the driveway and Tim's walking up it looking at him like it's a car show and in the background of this reel that I made on Facebook the music I was using was from Kansas carry on my wayward son and later on after he passed away I watched the video and what I heard in the lyrics were unbelievable my charade is the event of the season And if I claim to be a wise man, it surely means that I don't know. On a stormy sea of moving emotion, tossed about like a ship on the ocean, I set a course for winds of fortune, but I hear the voices say, There'll be peace when you are done. Lay your weary head to rest. Don't you cry no more. Man, was he sick. When I saw him at that hospital, man, was he sick. I still remember him begging you for more morphine and more anti-anxiety medicine because he couldn't breathe because the tumor was pushing down on his esophagus. And you just said, I can't give you any more, baby. I held his hand for three straight hours, and I leaned in his ear and I said, you're not going to die alone. Marines don't let you die on the beach by yourself. And he just looked at me and just blinked his eye because he couldn't hardly talk anymore. It was the struggle to breathe, you know. But the way you found out was just deplorable. You go to work at the palliative unit, and you call me. And you sound like you've been in a car wreck. I thought you were because all you kept saying was Tim. T? T, Tim. What's his last name? I won't say that. To protect it, but no. But I, I was I asking you it. what his last name was because I I opened the door and I there was a moment of familiarity, and there's nothing worse than when you're going. It's hard enough to work in a palliative unit with people who are dying every day, um, but it's a career that I have chosen because I'm very passionate about it. And when you are on your last days, it's important to have people who are very compassionate and empathetic with what you're going through and are able to help the families understand what they're going through. But there's something that there's no words for when you open a door uh, to do your rounds and learn of the patient that you are now going to be caring for for the next eight hours and realize that there's familiarity in the room. And it hit me like a freight train. I I looked at the patient and I thought, wow, there's I know that guy. Why do I know that guy? And then my my 
my vision immediately began panning the room of the family members inside, and, and I recognized the lady. And in that moment, I was in shock and awe, and it was crazy because I could not recall names. I, I And then I looked at the name on the door, and for some reason, things weren't adding up in those milliseconds. And I immediately tried calling you. And if anyone's ever tried to call somebody when you're in a moment of panic, for some reason, the phone just doesn't work right. I was in a simulator. And and I and I couldn't get the phone to dial out for some weird reason. I couldn't get the buttons. I couldn't get the screen to cooperate. Uh, you know, we, we, we fumble our phones so naturally. But when those moments of panic happen, the phone just, the naturalism of functioning of that phone just doesn't happen. And I remember struggling to call you and at the same time trying to put together my thought process and it wasn't working. And that's why I sounded like I was in a car accident um, because I had just been hit by a freight train. And you got to remember four months ago, he was at our party walking up the driveway. In a year, less than a year, he was at our wedding. Yes. and Dancing. uh, so we're talking about the responsibility of, 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 of a safe friend who you pour your heart out during life uh, and you share so many tragedies of life, uh, the ups and the downs. And in this one moment, when you're at your worst, uh, your friend doesn't share with you that he's terminal and that he's dying. And we had to find out in a very... Um, untraditional way, and I felt responsible in having to break that news to you, um, as I felt it should have been his responsibility as your safe friend. He had the opportunity at the party, because I saw the uh, device on his waist with a hose, and I asked him, what the hell is that? And he said he had a urinary tract infection. He could have pulled me off and told me that I was diagnosed with cancer. There's nothing I probably could have done except hung out with him more. And it's interesting because within days he was gone. Mm-hmm. I mean, it went so fast. Yeah. I remember I was in that simulator and I was on day three with uh, the intensity of training. And I was I was useless after that, just absolutely useless. Went straight to the VA. And when I saw him, I just could not believe what was left of him. Cancer had disassembled him. Mm-hmm. It had taken him apart. He couldn't even talk. And now his passing and the void that he has left you has also affected you and disassembled you. So yeah. can you can you reflect more on that? Sure, sure. it's easy. I, I asked him, can I uh, take care of your cat? And he goes, when he passed away. And I go, well, how about your dog? I'll take care of your dog for you. He goes, Coda passed away too. Then he looked at me and he said, it's been a banner year because we know within hours he was going to die. And he did, like 72 hours later. And um, I just retracted from everybody, from you. You noticed it first. Mm -hmm. Your friends? My friends, yeah. I, I just, I didn't realize I was doing it. I got so burned from that that it just it just pulled me back from reaching out anymore. And if it wasn't for you recognizing it, I probably would have never recognized it. 
and recognizing it as half the battle. And, you know, it's called the five stages of grief. And, you know, they're never in textbook order, the five stages of grief by Kubler-Ross. Um, we have them in, 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 in a different, I think it's all depending upon when death enters your life. Um, if, you know, you weren't given the time to go through the beginning stages, uh, you, you weren't able to, to, to be, um, to have the bargaining, uh, uh, aspect of it, um, or the denial aspect of it, because it's like you found out and then he was gone. So yeah. you immediately had to deal with it. Yeah. Um, but I have seen the anger phase, uh, the withdrawal phase mm-hmm. of, of you withdrawing from, from family, from friends. Mm-hmm. Um, so do you feel now that you're starting to recover from it, or is this still having a profound effect upon you? I, I won't ever recover from it. And it'll always have an effect on me. I, I've learned something in my 20s, my 30s, my 40s, my 50s. And in those age groups, I can pretty much predict what's going to happen to a man. But I can never could have predicted this in my 60s. Even though I've gone to more funerals and I have birthdays lately because of the age group I'm in, I knew these people were going to die. Or they died suddenly. Like, I'm going to the hospital to get some blood work. And next thing I know, they're dead. But we're talking about a friend who opened up everything of his tragedies in life to you. And this was one door he kept closed. And so, it, of course, it's going to have a profound ripple effect upon you for the rest of your life. And, and I'm sorry that it had happened to you. But I think it's important for our listeners to understand that tragedy happens in so many different ways. And it's how do we overcome those tragedies? And whether you're male or female, it still affects us profoundly. And well, it's important that we are able to reach out to other people. And it's important for people to recognize when somebody might be caught up in these grief cycles uh, or one of these grief phases. And I think that empathy can go a long way in a situation when somebody has lost a dear friend, uh, not even realizing how dear that friend is to them. Well, you were my safe friend during that because uh, you didn't let me drive alone to Pensacola for his military funeral. You could have. You had plenty of work to do. But you put that aside and went with me to make sure that I handled it well. And I did. But it's the post yeah, so that don't you're forget. not handling well. So don't forget, your wife can be a safe friend, too. Yes. It's important to find your safe friend. But if you are a safe friend to somebody else, it's important to understand that no matter what tragedy you're facing in life, and most importantly, when that tragedy is your own terminal illness, be responsible to those who are in your inner circle, and perhaps the second circle. And remember the pain that you will leave behind by not letting them in. I agree. I know he was scared because he would, even when he was having a hard time breathing and he let go of my hand, the minute he'd get his breath back, he'd hold my hand. He'd reach out and hold my hand. I could have done that a lot more. Yeah. I could have done that by just sitting next to him watching TV. I could have done that by just you know sipping water instead of a beer. I don't care. You could have done a lot of things, 
before he went. And, and I know it's easy for us to say versus do. And if we take the side of the dying person, I can respect the fact that they want to withdraw from everybody because sure. they, they're they trying to protect them from that pain. Yeah. Uh, but I think by not by protecting them from the pain, you're causing greater harm yeah. than allowing them to be part of the process. I agree. You, you need to include your safe friend in that process when you get diagnosed, if you have time. Yes, if you do. So, And I always like to tell people that if you, as hard as it is to hold the hand of a dying loved one, a dying family member, or a dying friend, always remember how lucky you are to be able to hold their hand and be there in their last moments. Oh, it was an honor. I was, everybody else would just stand around and look at him. I had no problems holding him. I had no problems hugging him. I had no problems kissing him on the forehead. And he didn't look like the kind of person you wanted to approach and touch, trust me. It was horrible what it had happened to him. Yeah. Terminal illness will change us all, as does death. Frank, again, thank you for being here. It's hard, the subject that we have to discuss, but I think that it will resonate with many of our listeners who might be going through some of their own trials and tribulations and their own darkest days in having to face the realities of telling their family and friends that their time is near. Thank you. Thank you for joining me today on this podcast. And I hope that you will share this episode and our future episodes with family and friends. We look forward to any feedback you have to offer by giving us a review on Apple or Spotify. And we hope that you will join us for a virtual tour at www.nmfh.org. And always remember, any day above ground is a good one.